Today's passage is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 34. You can, I think, follow along on the screens behind me. Um, it can also be found on page 560 in the Blue Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that one home with you as our gift. Verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ is the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Well, have you ever experienced virtual reality or VR as it is sometimes known? Anybody? You ever done that? Yep, got a couple. Kids, have you ever experienced VR? Not quite. This is kind of what it looks like. Uh, so, you know, you put something on your eyes. Uh, you know, this technology's been around for a little while, but um, just in case you're unaware of what it is, you put something like these kinds of goggles on there and you have these little things that you play around with and basically it creates a whole like another world 
And so you can look around, you can look up, down, and, and the screens will, will follow along with you. It's, it's like as if you're actually immersed into a completely different world. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Meta, the parent company of Facebook, 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 he, um, he thinks that virtual reality is the way of the future. And so he wants to create a whole virtual reality universe where people socialize and interact. And so hence, that's why they changed the name to Meta, because he wants to create what's called the Metaverse. Uh, you can even go online and find uh, a video of him introducing it and talking about how great it is. Uh, is it a little bit creepy? Uh, judging by the comments on the video, I think most people seem to think that it is. Uh, one of my favorites was something like, this is literally the intro to a sci-fi film. Um, so there you go. Now, the main reason that people seem to be worried about this potential future of a metaverse is because we're concerned that living your entire existence in a virtual world, it just it cannot be good for your spiritual, sorry, for your mental health, <laughs> your spiritual health probably too. And it can't be good probably for your grip on reality. So generally, we think it's a good idea to live in reality and not in virtual reality. As a Christian, do you live in resurrection reality? There is perhaps no greater or more important challenge to us as those who profess to follow Christ as we seek to live in the here and now. Do we live in resurrection reality? This is the point of our passage this morning. Verse 12 tells us that there were some in the church who were denying that Christians will be resurrected. And the rest of this passage explains why that is not only wrong, but also completely guts the gospel that Paul has just spent the last little bit summarizing, which we saw last week. And he shows this in three movements. First, he shows how removing the resurrection of the saints totally destroys the gospel and Christ's own resurrection. That is in uh, verses 12 to 19. And then next, in verses uh, uh, 20 to 28, he asserts that Christ really has been raised from the dead and shows us why this is theologically important and how the end will actually eventually come. And finally, he goes back to showing a couple more ways our faith is impacted if the resurrection is not real. So there's three sections in this passage. One where Paul talks about the implications of, not, of the resurrection being not real and then asserting that it is real and then once again talking about the implications of it being not real. And so we're actually going to explore this passage through those two realities that Paul details uh, in this passage, in those three sections. The first, we'll look at resurrectionless reality, looking at those sections one and three, and then second, resurrection reality in the section two. So with our Bibles open, let's open our hearts and minds to hear what God has to say through it today. Resurrectionless reality, beginning at the first point. Now, do you hate the feeling of putting tons of effort into something and then getting to the end of it and realizing that it was just a waste of time? Does anyone, anyone know that feeling? Kids, do you know that feeling? My kids have got, you know those little bead things that you put on the trays and then like you, you, you finish your pattern and then you iron it and it's like one whole pattern, you know what I mean? There have been times when my children have done that and then somebody just accidentally knocked it off the bench after like 
stacks of effort putting that together. That's the feeling I'm, I'm talking about. You, you just, you've, you've really worked hard for something and then it's all been for nothing. Well, 2020 was uh, the year for that, wasn't it? COVID-19 brought about cancelled events, performances that were performed in a way that was nothing like what they were originally going to be performed. And no wonder people felt a whole lot of despair during that year. It's quite the sinking feeling when you realize that something you've poured so much of your life, your heart, your time, your energy, your resources into, suddenly you have nothing to show for it. That's a real sinking feeling. We work and we labor for a reason. We have an end goal, a purpose, a, a, fi- a finished product that we are working towards in the things that we do. And as Christians, that goal ultimately lies beyond the day of our death. And Paul makes it clear in verse 12 that this is one of the consequences of the gospel. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we will be also Apparently, there were some in Corinth who were trying to say that we wouldn't be. And maybe they believed that Jesus, Jesus had been raised from the dead, but not us, that we would not be. Now, this isn't entirely surprising, given that some of them uh, did not believe in a resurrection. We see an example of some of those kinds of people in Acts 17. As Paul is preaching, some hear about the resurrection and then they mock him. Most, though, in the ancient world, believed in some kind of spiritual afterlife, Uh, but certainly not a physical resurrection. A common inscription on many tombstones was, I was not, I was, I am not, I am free from wishes. That inscription on the tombstone was so common that actually it was abbreviated to just letters in Latin, in the same way that we today would just put R-I-P on a tombstone. So maybe they believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but it seems like some were teaching that we would not be raised from the dead, that we would not have a physical reality into which we would be raised. And Paul lays it out clearly to them that this is completely incompatible with the gospel. In verse 13, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. I mean, it's an interesting uh, thing for him to say this because, you know, that doesn't necessarily follow, right? Uh, God, uh, perhaps in His sovereign plan, may ordain it that, that Jesus would be raised, uh, but not everybody else. But Paul is speaking through the Holy Spirit here to give us God's truth on this matter, reminding us that Jesus taught a general principle of resurrection for all who belong to Him, not just that He would raise Himself. Christ's resurrection is only true if it is the first of many. The two are linked. You cannot have one without the other. And the consequences of this not being true, if this is not the case, Paul says, then the consequences are devastating. Paul Paul lists at least six consequences, depending on how you count them in these next verses. I'll include the ones that overlap, which brings my list to eight. Firstly, he says, the apostles and all the others, their preaching of the gospel is in vain. Secondly, he says that our faith is in vain. Thirdly, he says that the apostles and other eyewitnesses are misrepresenting God. Fourthly, Christ has not been raised at all. 
Fifthly, our faith is futile. Sixthly, we are still in our sins. Seventhly, saints who have died remain dead. And eighthly, we are of all people most to be pitied. Not only is that a lot of consequences, but those are faith-destroying consequences. And I don't mean faith as in necessarily like you believing and having faith. I mean the faith itself also is completely destroyed. Paul uses the language in verse 14 that he used in last week's passage of faith being in vain, which means that it was all for nothing. If Christ has not been raised, then Paul in all of his efforts, in all of his work, in all of his labor and preaching to see people come to Christ is for nothing. He has effectively been building a house that is just going to get knocked down by a wrecking ball as soon as he's finished with it. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. It's like all of your super getting gobbled up the moment you retire so that you cannot even use it. It will be all for nothing. Not only that, Paul says, but he and the other apostles who have testified to the risen Christ are actually misrepresenting God. They are lying. Now, not intentionally, but what they are saying about God is not true. Kids, uh, you know what a lie is? Can somebody tell me what a lie is? Anyone? That's right, it's when you say something that's not true. And Paul here, he's, he's, he's not intentionally lying, he's saying, but the message that we give is incorrect. You see, it's one thing to lie, and it's another to be sincere in what you're saying and then discover that you are wrong. Sincerity does not guarantee truth. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong. So Paul is saying that all the apostles that he mentioned in the previous passage of of chapter 15, the apostles, James, the 500, all of these people who are testifying to Jesus' resurrection, they have all been sincerely wrong if Christ has not been raised. Paul then goes on to restate what he said in verse 13, to emphasize the point, if the dead are not raised, the message of the gospel, which is of first importance, is nothing but a nice fairy tale. You might as well believe in Valhalla or Nirvana or some kind of transcendent spiritual plane. And Paul also reiterates the point that he's already made in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You can feel how important this is in these words and in Paul's repetition. He keeps making the same point. You see, when you're really passionate about something, when you really want someone to grasp what it is that you're saying, then you repeat yourself and you say the same thing again because you really want that person to make sure that they get it. So you say what you say again. Without the resurrection, your faith is futile, it is in vain. It is worthless. It would be like somebody coming along and poisoning your veggie patch the day before you pick all of those fresh, wonderful veggies. 
all your labor for nothing. Why? Well, Paul kind of explains it in the second half of this verse. You are still in your sins. Why is that a problem? Why does that mean that our faith is futile? Well, because the wages of sin is death. And Paul would say that explicitly in his letter to the Romans. You see, our sin, it condemns us in this life and for all eternity. Which makes sense as to why Paul then goes on to say in verse 18 that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. See, if there is no resurrection, then the power of sin and its consequences in death have not been overcome. And therefore, all of the the saints that have died believing in Christ's salvation, believing in His, His resurrection that will come, all of them, they truly have perished and their faith was in vain. The term fallen asleep is used in the New Testament to refer to Christians. And this is not just a polite way of talking about death. It is a way of communicating that death is not the end for those who trust in Christ. When we die, it is, as it were, as though we were merely falling asleep because we will wake. Death is not the end. Without the resurrection, past saints have truly died. Their fate is as bleak as what an atheist claims it is. Paul finishes the section with one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Seems like a bleak verse to be for a favorite verse for a guy who's generally not very bleak, doesn't it? For a guy who's wearing a yellow shirt while he preaches. I love this verse because it captures everything that Paul has just said and everything else he says in this chapter. I remember one time when I was speaking with a friend about being a Christian. Her response was, oh, that's good. We all need to believe in something. At the time, I didn't really know what to say, but it has remained with me ever since. Is that really all my faith is? Is it really just something to believe in? Something that gives me a sense of meaning and purpose and wonder in my life? It occurred to me that her statement was working from the assumption that faith serves a particular role in our lives. And it doesn't really matter which faith it is, as long as it plays that role. I imagine that many people would have this view, especially in our world today. And probably even some who profess to be Christians would have this view. But it is not a Christian view. No, the Christian stands with Paul and says that if our hope is futile, if our belief that when we die we will be raised to life with Christ, when He returns, is just something to believe in. 
then everyone should feel sorry for us. If that is not the case, that Christ has been raised and that we will be raised in the same way, then Karl Marx is right. Religion really is the opium of the people. It is the thing that will not take care of the real problem, but just make you feel better until you die. Without the resurrection, the person who pats you on the head, whether physically or metaphorically, and tells you, that's nice, dear, good for you. They're right. Without the resurrection, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Why? Because something we truly and dearly believe to be real turns out to just be a false hope. It would be like thinking that, you know, Aslan in the flesh is going to come in and solve all your problems. You might as well go and try and find a lamp and rub it so that you can get a genie who will grant you three wishes. Yeah, you, you're allowed to laugh at that, kids. Because yeah, as some of you kind of are, there's a bit of a smirk there going on. You can, because we, we laugh at that because we think that's ridiculous. And Paul is saying, without the resurrection, that's how we ought to treat our faith. It's just as, though it was that false. Brothers and sisters, do we live knowing that resurrection is real? Do we live each day knowing that everything in this life counts and matters, not just for today and for the days to come, but for the eternity which awaits? I'm not imagining for a moment that this is easy for any of us. The signs of us living in resurrectionless reality, they show up in our lives on a daily basis. Don't they? They show up in our prayers that are more concerned about our own comfort than God's glory. They show up in our lack of prayer and our laziness and inattention towards spiritual disciplines as if growth in godliness were just, you know, too hard. They show up in our anxieties and our worries about material things and worldly outcomes, whether we will have a satisfying job or successful children or our dream house. They show up in our indulgence, time-wasting, and our annoyance that God would intrude into our lives and in our leisure. They show up in us functionally living as though the faith that we hold ought to have its biggest payout in our lives today, whether that's in good mental health or some kind of blessing or some sense of oneness with God. They show up in us giving up the fight against society's march to secularism or our preference to remain quiet and to not rock the boat as if these things were not great wrongs that God is returning soon to put right in a good reality that will last forever. They show up in our tendency towards hopelessness. If a resurrectionless reality was real, then we really should all just go home and get on with our lives. 
or go on a journey of self-discovery. Eat, pray, love. Who cares what you do? None of it really matters. Praise God that that is not the reality. To use another J.I. Packer quote from the same book in a few weeks, hear what he has to say about how the Puritans lived their lives and inspired his own. The Puritans have taught me to see and feel the transitoriness of this life, to think of it with all its richness as essentially the gymnasium and dressing room where we are prepared for heaven and to regard readiness to die as the first step in learning to live. I pray that we would live more and more like that each day. Paul continues further down in verse 29 to show why a resurrectionless reality is devastating for the Christian faith. He gives us a couple more implications. And in so doing, he writes a sentence in God's holy scripture that would be a holy head scratcher for millions of Christians down the ages. Has anyone ever read this verse and gone, what does that mean? Okay, I'm the only one. What on earth do these people and Paul mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Theologian Andy Nacelli says there are over 200 interpretations of this verse. I don't know where he gets them from, but I assume he's read that many. It is certainly one of the more puzzling verses in the Bible, which is why I'm going to get a little bit technical here, but because it's such a puzzling verse, I think it's worth spending just a little bit of time trying to understand it. Let me give you uh, the three perhaps most plausible explanations and then draw some conclusions. Firstly, the most common explanation and what is apparently the most straightforward reading of this verse is that Paul is talking about vicarious baptism. That is, baptizing a person on behalf of another person who is already dead. So it would be like, uh, you know, you being baptized on behalf of your unbelieving great-great-grandfather, something like that. The great problem with this is that if that was an actual practice, then this is literally the only place that it is mentioned in the Bible and anywhere else in the early church. Not only that, theologically, it runs counter to the rest of Scripture and the fact that baptism was a sign of inner faith, not a magical rite that if you performed it on someone could have some kind of saving effect. The only other place that you hear about this kind of thing is in the writings of some of the church fathers where they describe some fringe cults actually doing this and they all roundly condemn that practice. So if this is what Paul is talking about, then given the fact that he shifts to the third person, he says them, what do they mean, and refers to other people who are doing this, and then the fact that he doesn't condemn or commend the practice, then this is an indicator that he, is, that he is using simply to bring up this point and to make it. So it's like he's saying, these people who practice vicarious baptism, whether or not it's a good thing, that practice would have no meaning without the resurrection. 
as I mentioned, that can be problematic. This main issue is the theological problems with that. Secondly, the view of John Chrysostom and other church fathers is that Paul was referring to actually actual baptism, but in a slightly different way. So that is, the baptism on behalf of the dead is referring to our own bodies, which are as good as dead without Christ. So here's how he puts it. Paul, recalling to their minds, said, If there is no resurrection, why are you then baptized for the dead? That is, the dead bodies, as in our dead bodies. For in fact, with a view to this, you are baptized the resurrection of your dead body, believing that it no longer remains dead. Theologically, that is far more sound, but the main problem with this reading is whether the actual grammar of the sentence can support it. And finally, another possibility is that Paul is referring to people being baptized for the sake of the dead. And that's another way of translating on behalf of, legitimate way. The scenario here is of a loved one, so you can picture a loved one who is dying on their deathbed and they are pleading with their unbelieving child or their unbelieving uh, loved ones who are at their side to be united with them in eternity and them responding in faith and being baptized. There's some uh, grammatical and historical reasons for this argument and that's basically the third one. Now, I think any of these uh, are plausible explanations. Personally, for the reasons I've outlined, I would lean towards the second and third options as to what Paul is saying. But the point is, whichever was the one that Paul intended, however you read this verse, it remains the same. The point is that without the resurrection, this baptism is in vain, it's pointless. And it goes without saying that all of our baptisms done biblically would be pointless without the resurrection. Once again, this ordinance that we celebrate, that we treasure, that we rejoice in when a person becomes a new believer, it's symbolizing the dying to self, dying to sin and raising to life in Christ. It means nothing without the resurrection. And if that is true, then it's also certainly true of every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper each week. Brothers and sisters, when we celebrate these ordinances together, remember that we don't just practice them for the reminder of hope that we have today. We remember that these signs point to a resurrection reality in Christ, which He has secured for us. Paul then switches to another significant consequence of a resurrectionless eternity. Why are we in danger every hour? He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. We often admire people who are willing to give their lives for something that they believe in, don't we? If you haven't found something worth dying for, then you haven't found something worth living for, right? That's what Paul is getting at here. But it's interesting, because this could go also into that same bag of, well, 
We all need to believe in something. You see, Christians aren't the only people in history to have died for what they believed in. And yet Paul is concerned here not about whether we will have the strength and the courage to die for what we believe. He's saying that any who do so in the name of Christ without the resurrection would do so for nothing. And one of the implications of that is that any who do die for what they believe in and what they believe is not the gospel, then yes, they have died for nothing. Worse, they have died for the wrong thing. And that is a danger that exists not just for the agnostic or the Hindu or the tribesmen in far-off places. It exists for us. Do we not, brothers and sisters, die every day to so many other things other than Christ? For our children, for our careers, our well-being, our bank accounts, our enjoyment, our reputation, our families. This is a sobering truth. And it is one of the outworkings of Jesus being the only way, truth and life. Sincerity in laying down your life for what you believe in is not enough. It must be for Him. And as Paul says here, He dies every day. Following Christ is not just about being willing to profess allegiance to Him in your final moments, but to do so every day. Paul fought beasts in Ephesus, which seems to be a metaphor for the challenges that he faced and perhaps the persecution that he received from some of the people there. He's willing to put his life on the line every day for the sake of the gospel. And yet, in a resurrectionless reality, this would all be futile. Paul quotes Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. The context of which is Israel not repenting and turning away from their sin and back to God after the Lord has pronounced judgment on them. The same attitude that the Israelites had there in this verse is the kind that we might as well all have if resurrection is not real. Makes sense. If there is nothing beyond this life that we can have real hope and confidence in, then the atheist is right. And the hedonist wins. And this is exactly the kind of philosophy that we should live by. Without resurrection, why wouldn't human existence just be simply based on survival of the fittest? Why should I care about somebody else? What reason would we have to look down upon the billionaires of the world for wanting to live the good and high life that they have either worked really hard for or inherited? Or even just the average person who just wants to blow all their money on booze and boats or pedicures and Prada bags. You could try and take the moral high ground and say that it is more noble to be sacrificial and to help people and to fight to end climate change or whatever other cause you might believe in. But if there is no resurrection, then that moral high ground doesn't exist. It only exists in your mind 
Because when everybody dies, both the good and the evil will decompose in the ground and their lives would be forgotten and the earth would keep spinning until the sun died and the whole universe imploded or exploded or whatever it would do. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do you ever fear that your non-Christian friends are getting to live better lives than you? That their best life looks way better than your best life? But that perspective comes from viewing the world through resurrectionless reality goggles. As rapper Shai Lin puts it, if you're living your best life now, then you're headed for hell. What is it that draws us to desiring our best lives now? The most obvious answer is our own sin, right? Our flesh desires the pleasures of the here and the now more than the pleasures that are at the right hand of God. But surely a big part of the reason is because we view the world through resurrectionless reality goggles. Paul finishes this section with a strong warning. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Verse 33 is often quoted in a general way. And in a general way, and in general, it's good wisdom, right? Bad company ruins good morals. Parents, have you ever used that one on your kids? Children of parents, have you ever heard that one from your parents? Uh-huh. And in fact, the origin of the quote is probably from a piece called Theus by a poet named Menander, but it's likely that it just became one of those sayings that, you know, everybody just said, which is pretty much how people use it today. But Paul's specific concern here is in calling out those who are teaching that there is no resurrection for the followers of Christ. Why? Because such teaching leads to the atheistic philosophy that he has just talked about. He says, don't listen to them. Don't listen to these ones who are trying to teach you that there is no resurrection. Don't follow them in their drunken stupor, which leads to this, this hedonistic philosophy. That way only leads to sin and death. They are the ones who have no knowledge of God, Paul says. And he makes it clear that this is not something to be proud of. Brothers and sisters, guard your hearts. Guard your, your desires, your minds, your, your passions. When you find yourself being tempted by the lives of unbelievers around you, when you find yourself thinking, you know what, that hedonistic philosophy of eat, drink, you know, be merry, eat, pray, love, whatever it is, when you find yourself wishing that you could indulge in the same things as those around you, pining after pleasures that God has barred from you right now, remind yourself of the truth. There is a life and a world and a resurrection body to come for you. 
Whatever it is that you think you are missing out on in this life, it will pale in comparison to the resurrection life that you will live. If there was no resurrection body, then all of your struggling and all of your straining and all of your enduring and praying and trusting in God and your weekly church attendance would be for nothing. But it's not. Praise God that Christ has already been there Himself and He promises to bring you to Himself. May we pray and encourage one another to live knowing that without this truth, our faith is futile. But that because it's true, we have a life now and a resurrection life in eternity to rejoice in. We have hope and truth to guide us in the ebb and flow of our daily reality. And that brings us to our second point. Resurrection reality. So far, what we've seen is what life looks like for the Christian if the resurrection is not real. And it's a pretty depressing picture. But the opposite is so magnificently greater that you cannot imagine a reality more incredible than this. Let's read verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Remember, this is exactly what Paul spent the first 11 verses of chapter 15 defending. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It is what the apostles and James and those 500 people who saw him all at once testified to. And not just because it is a fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, but because that makes him the first fruits of those who have tasted death. The first fruits, you might be familiar, in the Old Testament were an indicator and a promise of the crop that was to come during harvest time. Jesus is the first to be bodily resurrected in his eternal body, and it is his resurrection which serves as the first fruits for what will be ours. A promise and a guarantee that we will have resurrected, restored bodies like his. Why? How? And Paul goes on to explain. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In the same way that he does in Romans 5, Paul now contrasts the first Adam and the last Adam, Jesus. You see, in Adam, we have inherited death and sin. And we are in Adam because his disobedience and breaking of the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden has been counted to us. He acted, as it were, as the legal representative of all humankind. That is why in Adam all die. The curse of sin and its consequences applies to all of his descendants. But the good news of the gospel is that he was not the last Adam. In Christ, we receive the resurrection. When a person turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus, he becomes their legal representative and not Adam. 
And rather than receiving the death that we receive in Adam, they receive resurrection in Christ. Some might suggest here that because it is true that all who are in Adam really do die, then all must be made alive in Christ. That must be what Paul is saying, given the, con- the connection. Now, the problem with that, which is a belief known as universalism, because it teaches that all people will be saved, is that it contradicts the rest of the Bible as well as the very next verse. In verse 23, Paul makes it clear that Christ at His coming when He comes again, will raise all those who belong to Him. And all those who belong to Him are those who have received His salvation by grace through faith. If you're here this morning and that is not something that you have done, let me urge you to exchange the status that you have in Adam, one of being under the curse of sin, to one in Christ. What the Bible teaches us is that Christ came down to earth as a man to live the perfect life of obedience that none of us could. And he died on the cross to receive the penalty of sin that we deserve in Adam. And it is by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus that our sin might be counted to him and his righteousness might be counted to us. If we remain in our sin, if we remain in Adam then all we have is a fearful expectation of judgment. But when we turn and trust in Christ, then what we have is a joyful expectation of resurrection. Trust in Him today. And please feel free to come and talk to me or to one of our other members here at Emmaus Road. Paul now gives us a blow-by-blow account of what will happen when Christ comes again. Having been resurrected, when He returns, those who belong to Him will also be resurrected. And then after that, the end will come where Christ will deliver the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He will hand it over to the Father. You might remember back from our Daniel series how this language is right throughout that book. The recognition that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, one that will not be destroyed, one that rules over all. There is a picture of total and complete rule. And Paul weaves in the points that he's been making in these next few verses. Jesus' reign, which has begun and is present now, will have final reign over everything when the end comes. And the last enemy and authority that will destroy is death. Paul quotes from Psalm 8 and 110, giving us yet another clear example of how he is reading Old Testament Scripture through the lens of Christ. Even though death is not explicitly mentioned in these verses, Paul sees it there as a legitimate understanding of what the psalmists are saying. Things that perhaps even the psalmists did not realize they were writing about are now fully revealed through Christ's apostles. And even though it should be obvious, Paul is still cautious and points out that clearly this doesn't include God the Father, who was the one who put all things in subjection under Christ. I love the way he phrases that. 
even when it says this, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Clearly, the Father is not being put under subjection. That's kind of what he's saying. That is what he's saying. Given how easy it has been for the Corinthians to slip into error, it's unsurprising that you know, he felt the need to just be really clear. Just, just make sure that you get that. And also, because he concludes with this point in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Did you follow that? When all things are subjected to Christ, to the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the Father. Sometimes we can get a bit nervous when we read verses like this because we think, oh, hang on a second. I thought God was, was a trinity. I thought he was three persons, one God equal in power and glory. How could the Son be subject to the Father if that is the case? Well, to some extent, that may remain a mystery to us for a long time. Maybe God will help us understand it more clearly in eternity. But for now, we know at least that in some sense, Jesus will functionally submit to the will of the Father, just as He did in His life and ministry on earth. Mark 14.36 and John 5.19 are a couple of examples of that. And here in verse 28, there is some sense in which Jesus himself submits to the Father at the end of all things. Why? That God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. I think the ESV Study Bible expresses what this means in a fantastic way. Another good reason to get one if you don't have one. If you don't have one, you can't afford one, I will happily buy one for you. Come and see me. God will be all in all. Not in the sense that God will be everything and everything will be God, as some Eastern religions imagine, but in the sense that God's supreme authority over everything will be eternally established, never to be threatened again. As Christians, we live in the now and the not yet. Christ reigns, but not completely just yet. But the day is coming when He will. The end is coming. And when it does, He will defeat all enemies and all who oppose Him and will raise all who belong to Him to eternal life, to a physical reality, to enjoy God being all in all. When the end comes, his reign will be complete, never to be threatened again. Those who belong to Christ will sing around that happy throne the praises of our God. Just let that sink in. That is a fact that will one day be true. That is history that hasn't happened yet. 
It is the completion of our salvation that is yet to come. We have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. We are being sanctified by His Spirit and we will be glorified and raised with Christ to worship and enjoy God for all eternity as He is all in all. Brothers and sisters, we are hurtling towards eternity at the breakneck speed of 60 seconds per minute. Before you know it, this life will be over and the pleasures and the trials of it and the mundaneness of it will be a thing of the past. And what lies before you, what lies ahead of you, will be infinitely greater than what lies behind Some of you might say, oh, but I don't like singing. I don't want to be singing for the rest of eternity. Don't worry about those details. You also don't know what it's like to live a life without sin. Put on your resurrection reality goggles. Do it daily. Put them on when you feel like you are bored of your life. Put them on when you are disappointed with how things have turned out. Put them on when you doubt whether suffering and taking up your cross for Christ is worth it or not. Put them on when you doubt whether God is good and whether His salvation is worthwhile. Put them on when you feel yourself longing for pleasures and treasures in this life that God has thus far denied you. Put them on when it feels like the enemies of God in their authority and power seem to have beaten him at his own game. Put them on when you feel trapped and hopeless. Put on your resurrection reality goggles. Put them on when you achieve all the things that you want to. Put them on when something you have been longing for for so long is finally fulfilled. Put them on when you think that life could not possibly get any better than this. And put them on when you start to think that perhaps you don't need God. Put them on when you begin to hedge your bets and think that maybe the optimal life is one where you still get to indulge in this world, indulge in the things of the flesh, but have just enough of Jesus to still just slip into heaven. Put on your resurrection reality goggles and do it every day. Hear again from Packer on how the Puritans put on theirs. The Puritans experienced systematic persecution for their faith. What we today think of as the comforts of home were unknown to them. Their medicine and surgery were rudimentary. They had no aspirins, tranquilizers, sleeping tablets, or antidepressant pills. Just as they had no social security or insurance. In a world in which more than half the adult population died young and more than half the children born died in infancy, disease, distress, discomfort, pain, and death, were their constant companions. They would have been lost had they not kept their eyes on heaven and known themselves as pilgrims traveling home to the celestial city. 
The Puritan's awareness that in the midst of life, we are in death, just one step from eternity, gave them a deep seriousness, calm yet passionate, with regard to the business of living that Christians in today's opulent, mollycoddled, earthbound Western world rarely manage to match. Few of us, I think, live daily on the edge of eternity in the conscious way that the Puritans did. And we lose out as a result. For the extraordinary vivacity, even hilarity, yes, hilarity, you will find it in the sources, with which the Puritans lived stemmed directly, I believe, from the unflinching, matter-of-fact realism with which they prepared themselves for death. So it was always to be found as it were, packed up and ready to go. The goggles you wear will determine your reality today. Which ones will you wear today and tomorrow and the rest of your life? I say that because in our present life, in the now and the not yet, we do not see things as they truly are. We strive to, we strive and pray for God to help us see this life through resurrection reality goggles. But one day, our best attempts at that will give way to the actual reality. Just like when you take VR goggles off and you drink in real life, when Christ returns and raises those who belong to Him, we will drink in real, eternal life. Brothers and sisters, how will you live today in resurrection reality? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for giving us such a wondrous, incredible hope. Father, you are worthy of all the praise, of all the glory. The promise of eternal life is beyond what we can comprehend. Because of that, Lord, so often we fix our eyes not on eternal things, on things that will last. But so often we are short-sighted and only look a few feet in front of us. Lord, forgive us of that, we pray. Help us to see this world as it truly is to calibrate our goggles so that we might see through the lens of the resurrection. And may we as a result rejoice and praise you and thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, for the great hope 
of all that you will do. Lord, we look forward to that day when we will praise you as you will be all in all. In Jesus' name, amen.